I'm turning today to the first letter of Peter, chapter 1 and verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 14. And our subject is the greatest motives for holiness. And that will be the theme of this and the immediately subsequent verses for our thinking and our study today. And our first heading will be, this is the first great motive for obedience, which is here in the passage, that this is the goal and the purpose of our calling. The primary goal and purpose is holiness and obedience. So the Apostle Peter proceeds immediately to deal with this. Perhaps I should read verse 13 before we study verse 14. Wherefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, translating the Greek for watchful, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. I mentioned this as being a primary aim. And uh, it's necessary to, for us to think in these terms. As a believer in Christ, born again by the Spirit of God, a servant of Christ, one of my chief desires this week to be, it would be to be an obedient child of God. It's a very good thing to see obedience in children, to see a young family where the children are willingly and happily obedient to their parents. Not all children are. There are those that have, uh, have, well, very strong personalities and independent ideas and are strong-minded, and it's uh, more difficult for their parents to secure obedience. And uh, maybe it's a sign of future strengths, but there are young rebels. But it is, everyone agrees, something of particular beauty to see respectful and obedient children. And this is what we are called to be. The illustration is set before us, an obedient family. Well, with regard to God, as obedient children. It's a tremendous concept and thought, as obedient children. Seeking to make ourselves always submissive to the will of God, as revealed in his word open to him, compliant before him, ready to hear him at every challenge, at every exhortation, day by day even, checking out the things we plan and the things we do. Does this represent the conduct of one who is obedient to God, seeking the guidance of God, looking to his standards for everything and his exhortations. 
And that is what is the picture of the believer. It isn't always so. With us, as obedient children, not fashioning or conforming oneself to the former lusts in your ignorance. Every word is significant. Not allowing yourself, perhaps we should say, to be conformed to the world, to fit in. This is the opposite of what is often taught today. People are told, be uh, uh, conformed culturally. Respect the culture. Do what they do so that there isn't an enormous gap between you and the worldling. Be ready to engage in conversation about worldly things. Go to the same places, the same entertainments. Merge with the culture in order to be relevant and significant. And this is being taught in many Bible-believing circles today. But it's the exact opposite of these solemn words, not fashioning yourselves, literally conforming with to the former lusts, the way of the world, the things that you did in your ignorance. Of course, the Gentile converts uh, were unfamiliar entirely with the revelation of God and with his law before their conversion. They were ignorant of the standards of God entirely. And uh, they're not to go back to that. And the average Jew, though he had the great advantage of a moral education, he had come to convince himself that righteousness consisted in conforming to all the requirements of the ceremonial law in the worship. And as long as you conformed to those things and you went through the rituals and you did the things required of you, you were righteous before God. And even their teachers were slack and appallingly behaved in moral matters. They were hypocrites, Christ says. They were greedy. They were immoral. But they conformed to the, the rituals and the worship. And they thought their, their righteousness was there. It was their ignorance of the requirements and demands of God. And that's what the Apostle Peter means. Not conforming to the former lusts, cravings, desires. Everybody's full of cravings of the flesh. Desires for me. What I want. I want, somebody says... Recognition and praise and appreciation. I want pleasure. I want possessions. I want bigger and better things that make me feel good and look good. Things that I can enjoy. I want experiences. I want even lustful and unclean experiences. These things rage around within human beings. The cravings, the longings of the fallen, corrupt states. Watch them closely as obedient children, not allowing yourselves to be conformed to any of those former lusts. Before you were converted, friends, 
What were your former lusts? What were they? Do you, do you watch for them? Are they rising influence? Do you hate them? Do you repel them and pray for power to reject them and turn yourself to better things as obedient children? Every now and then, this is a particular application, you find somebody genuinely converted who has not learned to be obedient to God. I think back to a young man years ago, nobody will know who I'm talking about, I'm going back a long way, and he was very able and very earnest and truly converted, and it came to the time where he led an older teenage boy's Bible class, and he was tremendously successful at it. He had the gift, the capacity, he had, uh, was able to commend himself and his message to the boys and they followed him. And he did this for a few months and then suddenly he gave it up. So sad, so tragic, because he was so blessed and capable in that task. Why did he give it up? Well, it wasn't enough for him. He was dreaming of things. He could do it uh, if he worked independently in different ways and so much better. He had a good imagination. His mind was full of ideas. And in the end, he had to go off. And all credit to him, he put his shoulder to the wheel. He started a meeting for youngsters in another place with very little help and toiled at it. But you see... He had a problem. He had to be doing his own thing, his own way, his own vision, his own idea. He didn't seem to be externally a proud person, but it is a form of pride, really, to be doing things the Lord's way or the regular way or in my church. It isn't enough. I, I've always got my eye on something else, something better that I can do by myself which I suppose will redound to my credits, and so on. This venture didn't last. He had some helpers, but it was hard work, and it couldn't be done the way he wanted to do it. And so he went on, moving from one project to another. And eventually, by God's goodness, he settled down, and he was found in a pastorate, working for the Lord in a more regular and a blessed way. But you look back and you think, how many years did that take in that particular case where an earnest person really re recognized that this is all about me and my big ideas and my personal private projects and what I want to do and so on. And I've seen it a number of times over many, many years, people who are in a department of the work, but within five minutes they want to lead it, or they want to do things before they've even learned to walk, and they've got bigger ideas, better ideas, and grand schemes, and off. And they're dear Christian people often, 
But there's one respect there, as the world will put it, their demon is not drink or something like that. It's, it's this, my idea, my self-determination and direction. And for a while, they can't handle it. And let's hope in due course they do, and they settle down. But, you know, even the translators of the King James Version had this problem among them. I don't know whether you've ever read the introduction to the King James Version, but it has addresses this very problem. This is not part of the inspired Bible. It's only the introduction to the King James Version. But these are quite well-known words, and I turn to them now. Um, here they are. At the end of their introduction, as the weary translators put this translation before the king and then the public, they say, we shall be maligned by self-conceited brethren who run their own ways and give liking unto nothing but what is framed by themselves, at this tremendous phrase, and hammered on their anvil. What an expression, it's a Jacobean expression. Hammered on their anvil. It's got to be something that they think up, that they do, their project, their, and so on. Well, that's a rather long digression, but it's just an example of what can happen when we don't understand what it means to be obedient children. Not obedient to the pastor, not obedient, obedient to God. Obedient to his ways and his word and his standards and his plans. I want to be an obedient child. Not some special person, not some great one. My ambition, what we should all say, is to be an obedient child of God. And that involves various things. Appearances. Some people are carried away by appearances and clothes. I've mentioned already, some are carried away by possessions. Very sad thing when a Christian has to buy the most expensive and top-of-the-range item. The biggest, best kind of car. The biggest, best kind of this. The biggest, best kind of that. Obedient children. I could go back to verse 13. This is a very important word. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. I mentioned already the, the Greek word is watchful. But it means actually more than that. Because the way this word is used in ancient Greek is this. It's used very much in connection with self-watch. Not just watching for the temptations that come from outside, but watching for myself. And that's why our translators chose the word sober, because they're not talking about drink. They're talking about sober conduct. In other words, reasonableness, denying ourselves the top thing, the most expensive thing, the most beautiful thing, the grandest thing, and living modestly and reasonably. There's a self-watch going on, watching for extravagance and over-luxury 
and wonderful this and wonderful that. There's, there's self-watch, self-control, modesty about the Christian. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober, watch yourself, and hope to the end. And separate from this world as obedient children, not allowing yourself to be conformed to the former cravings and desires and lusts for this world and for self. In your ignorance, I watched a, a little clip of a number of eminent uh, evangelical people um, answering questions uh, from a platform at a conference. And I noticed they're all required to hold a microphone. A strange thing this is. Why not put it on a stand? Why not clip it on the lapel? Why not do it as we always used to, discreetly? Why the sudden fashion to hold a great big microphone right under your nose? After all, you're not a pop singer who needs to do that because he's got to make strange noises right up close to the mic for his emotional effects and so on. I'm not condoning what he does, but he's got techniques to honour which require close mic and get, taking advantage of the foibles of the microphone. But the public speaker is perfectly serviced by something on a stand, something on a lapel. Why the sudden fashion to all adopt the world's ways? To look cool by holding up big microphones to your mouth and strutting up and down this platform with those. It's a small thing, it's just an observation. How foolish we've become. Not allowing yourself to become conformed to worldly things which are that culture, their ways, that's, that's the pop world. Leave that alone. But it's more serious when it comes to matters of conduct. And then I go down to verse 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. The first motive or incentive, if you like, to holiness is that it is our calling to be obedient children. The second one is here in verse 15. The motive is the one who calls us, the God we're called to serve, is pure and holy. He is apart from anything sinful and fallen. And you serve him. You belong to him. You must be the same. As he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. These are important words. Holy, pure, sacred. There's an element of apartness in the word. So be ye holy apart, separated unto God, holy to him, in all manner, all kinds of conversation. The modern translations 
always choose a word like behavior. And that's all right. But the Greek word isn't well translated by behavior. The Greek word comes from a combination of words which mean literally in your toing and froing. Now that's valuable, it's important. Be ye holy in all manner of toing and froing. Don't you see? The word is derived from this idea, interaction with others. So after all, the King James Version translators have done better in choosing the word conversation because that gets interaction with others than those who translate it as behavior. But nevertheless, it does include behavior. It's not just talk. In all your toing and froing, how you talk to other people and how you react to other people and what you do towards other people. It's all of it. In all manner of conduct towards other people, towards believers, towards unbelievers, towards people we should respect who are above us, towards children to whom we set an example and instruct, to all kinds of people and every kind of interaction with them, we are to be holy. So it's a massive exhortation in all toing and froing. Everything we do, every interaction in trade, in business, is to be marked by courtesy and holiness and good temper and goodwill. So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. These things are so vital and so important. Separate from worldliness, mortifying bad words, bad reactions, uh, sins of the flesh, depending on God. And the motive is because our God, our Father, is holy. As he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of toing and froing, both conversation and behavior. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. From Leviticus 11, verse 44, your margin will tell you. And the context of the passage in Leviticus is keeping apart from things that are impure. So that's the second great motive which is mentioned in the passage. But then I come down to verse 17, which is part of this. If ye call on the Father, I invite you to read that a little differently. The if is meant in the sense of as here. It isn't an if, which means if, if you're a Christian, and if you pray, then such and such. More the Greek reads, as you call on the Father, as you're a Christian, as you know him, since you know him, then it follows 
that you will pass the time of your stay here in fear. Let's look at the verse. This is the second great motive still, the holiness of God. As you call on the Father, because you're a praying person, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, and that applies to us in this way, even though we're saved, even though eternity is assured for us, our works are still judged by God. Our conduct every day and every week and our measure of assurance and our measure of usefulness to God, the degree to which he will use us and our testimony and the amount of help we receive from God and blessing will obviously depend on our deserving. We're saved by grace. But God will not pour out an abundance of assurance and blessing and usefulness if we're behaving as disobedient children or living carelessly. So the meaning of the verse, this motive Pursue holiness because your Father is holy. And if, as since, ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth, whether you're a Christian or not, according to what you do, pass the time of your sojourning, your stay as a stranger in this land, in fear. First of all, that means reverential fear, respect for your Father and for Christ who is near you and for the Holy Spirit who is within you. They are holy. How can I sin freely, do what I like, follow my own will all the time, indulge my cravings? How can I? And I shall be judged even now. My measure of happiness and fulfillment and usefulness and help depends upon this. Past the time of your sojourning, Peter reminds us yet again, your pilgrimage, if you like, your stay here as foreigners. You don't belong here. Don't make roots here. When you're decorating your house, make it clean and comfortable and attractive to your taste, somewhere you can live and your family and enjoy, but don't go way over the top and make it a place of baronial splendor and wonder. Don't make deep roots here that you'll overlove which will take you from love of the Lord and rock and tip your priorities. That's what this all means. You're sojourning here in fear. Be very careful what you do, that you don't order your affairs and your purchases in such a way you belong too much to this place where you're only here for a short stay and you're here chiefly to serve the Lord and to please him. 
Pass the time. It's only a time of your sojourning, your stay as a stranger, an alien, here, in fear. Reverence for God, but yes, fear, there's a place for fear. Here are the healthy fears for a Christian. Fear of hypocrisy. Fear of drifting into this state of living where I do things I wouldn't like my fellow believers to see. So I become a hypocrite. And outwardly I'm one person, but inwardly I'm giving hospitality to sins and thoughts and tempers and trends, which I wouldn't want them to know about. Secret things. Fear hypocrisy and pray and root it out. Fear bringing disgrace to the Lord. Any kind of misbehavior that discredits the gospel, that curbs my witness, that makes me odious in the sight of those to whom I owe the word of God. Fear of bringing disgrace upon this priceless name and message. These are the things that we should fear, fear of falling, going a step too far and then Satan brings me down into unbelief and stumbling and sin. Fear those things, revere God, but fear those things. And this is a motive, he is holy and he is watching and we want to please him. And then finally, and I come to conclusion with this, verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. The third motive for holiness implicit in this passage is this. Not only the holiness of the one we serve, but the eminence of the one we serve. This is a tremendous thought, and I just bring it to you as we conclude. You know, friends, here in the Word of God, there are distinct families of text concerning Calvary and the Atonement. There are four main families of text about the atonement. The word of God is so profound and so wonderful. There are more categories, but there are four chief ones. I've often had it in mind, and never yet come to it, to preach on all four categories together. Perhaps Easter time is a good time. The first category of texts, very briefly, are those texts which talk about the scope of Calvary and the power of Calvary, what it accomplishes and its scope, who is saved by it, who is covered by it, its eternal influence, the scope and the power of Calvary. There are many texts. 
Then there's another family of texts which talks about the love of God at Calvary. You know them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and so on. The Apostle Paul, he loved me and gave himself for me. There are many texts, there are family, emphasizing the love of Calvary. And then there's another family of texts which emphasize the pain and the cost and the sacrifice of Calvary and the agonies. And they start way back in the Old Testament, the most famous of them, of course, being Isaiah 53, which repeatedly focuses on the suffering and the pain and the tearing of Christ. And the New Testament is full of them also. But then there's a fourth great family of texts. And the one we just look at in closing is part of this family and it's very precious. In fact, it uses that very word. The eminence of the one who suffered and died on Calvary. Who died on Calvary? Set aside for a moment the scope and the power of Calvary. Set aside the love of Calvary. Set aside the pain of Calvary. Just look at the eminence of the one who died for us. This is a motive for holiness. It wasn't a prime minister, a head of state, an emperor, a noble person, a great achiever. All of them couldn't have done it. They are nothing. They are fallen sinful people. This was the eternal second person of the Godhead, Christ Jesus the Lord, no less a person than the creator of the world, the creator of me and you, the Lord of glory. He gave himself for me, a worm, and you. He gave himself, look at it here, for as much, here is the reasoning, you must be obedient children, for as much because you know that you were not redeemed, saved, paid for by corruptible things. What are you going back to corruptible things for? What are you going back to the movies for? They never brought you eternal life. They never washed away your sins. What are you going back to hours in front of the television unnecessarily for? What are you going back to possessions for? That fine car never brought you to heaven, to salvation. All those things only drag us away and down. Ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, not even gold and silver, that will all perish with us. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. Sometimes there are teachers, they mean well, but they make a big mistake, and they say, the blood of Christ 
is of itself nothing. It simply is a symbol. When we talk about the blood of Christ, it literally was shed, but it's a symbol of death. What matters is his death, his atoning death. Forget about the blood. That's a grave mistake. The precious blood of Christ. Think of this, friends. There are millions and millions of human beings that have been born and will be born. And they all have blood. But there is only one human being who at the same time was God. God incarnate, the creator of all things, the second person of the Godhead, assumed a human body, born at Bethlehem to Mary, conceived of the Holy Ghost, only one, God-man. Now, I don't suppose for a moment that the composition of the blood of Christ was any different from the composition of anybody's blood. But it was different in this respect. It was the blood of the body which enclosed and was coexistent with the eternal Son of God. I remember years ago when I was invited to uh, meet the Queen and a member of the staff gave me a tabernacle bookshop bag to put in the, the book that had been prepared for me to give to the Queen. I don't know what happened to that bag, but when I got back, this particular member of staff said to me, where's the bag? The bag? I've no idea. I threw it away. You threw it away? But that was in the presence of the Queen. And you've thrown it away. Ah, friends, this is a feeble illustration. How much more important and significant the blood that cursed in the veins of the everlasting Son of God, the precious blood of Christ. No lesser person shed his blood for you. What love, what condescension, what a mighty act, the all-glorious, most eminent of all, shed his lifeblood for you and for me. How can we not obey him, be wholly given to him, strive for holy lives for him? These are wonderful motives for holiness, incentives to live as never before for Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, as obedient children, 
not fashioning yourselves. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ Christ. 